Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. Good evening. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Kern, and I'm privileged to give the message tonight. Although I think you've heard a lot of it already. If you have been paying attention to the service after you hear my message, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it's like people took my notes. They knew what I was going to speak on, and they, were, and they wanted to give you a head start. Uh, so so uh, because it's Hanukkah, because this tells the story, the Hanukkah story is about a conflict, an, an actual war, um, it, has, it has a physical and spiritual component. I wanted to study how we deal with adversaries, how we deal with the physical and spiritual challenges that we face in our everyday life. So if you're taking notes, I kind of like uh, titles, so I came up with a title to this sermon, and it's Claiming Spiritual Victory in Messiah Yeshua. So uh, I hope that by the end of the sermon, you'll be encouraged that you have the victory in Messiah Yeshua if you trust in him this evening, and that he will advocate on your behalf in both your physical struggles and your spiritual struggles. So to start off, we're just going to go over briefly the story of Hanukkah. So the story of Hanukkah foreshadows God's physical and spiritual victory over Satan. Antiochus Epiphanes of Greece forced the people of Israel to renounce their faith, faith and Hellenize or die. So when the Greeks came into different countries, they made them adopt Greek customs. And if they wouldn't adopt those Greek customs, they, they would publicly kill them usually. So the, the believing Jews were often publicly martyred for their faith. But a group of believing rebels, commonly known as the Maccabees, fled to the wilderness of Israel and prepared to fight a battle against the Greeks, despite being outnumbered, despite just being kind of like a ragtag group of people against a, a well-formed army. But they fought against the Greeks not only to reclaim the land, but really to keep the Jewish faith alive. And this is kind of a common trend in if you read uh, scripture, that, that, you know, nations try to come in, eliminate the Jewish people, and God, God does something special. God performs a miracle, and he performed a miracle for them, and he gave them victory over the Greeks. But tradition tells us, and really I want to focus on this aspect of the story, uh, that they only had one day's worth of sanctified oil to keep the menorah in the temple lit. And it would take eight days to prepare more sanctified oil. So there, there was other oil in Israel, and there was other oil probably available even in the temple that uh, they, they could have in theory used to keep the menorah lit. But if they were to use that, use that uh, unholy oil, 
It would have been similar to giving in to what the Greeks wanted. Using these secular means or these flesh human ways to try to serve and follow the will of God. And I know that sometimes we can be deceived in that way. That what we, we're doing, we believe, is serving the will of God when it's really serving ourselves. But God responded and he performed a second miracle. And he allowed the menorah to remain lit for eight days while they prepared more sanctified oil. And this allowed them to serve God in his way and not a secular way or the ways of the world. Now, how does that connect to believers, connect to us? Well, Yeshua declared himself to be the light of the world in John 8, 12 and John 9, 5. And as believers in Yeshua, Yeshua declared in Matthew 5, 14 through 16 that we are to be lights to the world. And there's this parallel I want to draw here. So like the Maccabees used their one-day supply of oil and received the miracle of lights where God magnified that oil and allowed it to last for eight days, we are called to serve the kingdom with our callings and abilities, even if we believe that they're meager. Well, God can magnify those and make them great. However, just like Satan sent the Greeks to try and destroy the faith of the Israelites, he tries to hinder our good works. He aims to desecrate our oil and impede our call by deceiving us with lies. Now in Yeshua, we have been given the truth and already have victory over the enemy's lies and schemes through our Messiah. But we must claim this victory daily. It's kind of like how Christopher was talking about. We have to crucify the flesh daily and follow the ways of the Lord. We do this by recognizing the lies of the enemy and combating those lies with prayer and scripture. And in essence, this is what spiritual warfare is. Spiritual warfare is the struggle in each of us to believe God's truth over the enemy's lies. And to walk in victory, we must recognize that we are in a war we experience these battles in the form of trials and testing. And because we're on the theme of war, I, I thought we would look at a war in the Bible. So we're going to look at the book of 2 Kings. And we're going to read about the prophet Elisha. That's Elisha. Not to be confused with the prophet Elijah, who's also in the books of, books of Kings. And I encourage you to read Kings. It's actually fascinating. Uh, while in the midst of a literal war, Elisha had peace, and he trusted in God to be Israel's strength. So we're going to study this war that Elisha went through and, and see how in Elisha's physical circumstance in the midst of this war, how he engaged in spiritual warfare, how he had this peace in the midst of you know, of the, these trying uh, times. And on the screen, we're going to show uh, the, the scriptures using the New King James Version. I'm going to be reading from different versions for the Old Testament, for the King's portion, and for Psalms. I'm going to read later. I'm going to read from the complete Jewish Bible. And I'll tell you the other versions as I get to them. So reading from 2 Kings 6, 8 through 12. Now the king of Aram went to war against Israel. 
And in consulting his servants, he said, I'll set up my ambush camp in such and such a place. The man of God, Elijah, sent this message to the king of Israel. Be careful not to go past such and such a place because Aram will attack there. So the king of Israel sent men to the place the man of God had told him and warned him about, and he took special precautions there. Now this happened more than once or twice, and it greatly upset the king of Aram. He called to his servants and said to them, Tell me which of you is betraying us to the king of Israel. One of his servants replied, It's not that, my lord king, rather Elisha the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words you speak privately in your own bedroom. So the first way that Elisha engages in spiritual warfare is that he's listening to the Lord. We, hearing from the Lord requires us to regularly engage with the Lord through spending time in prayer. So if you are facing a challenge in your life, humble yourself before the Lord and make your requests known to him. In Elijah's case, listening to the Lord foiled Aram's ambush attempts and literally saved lives. So have faith that none of our adversaries can ambush our, our omnipotent God. So the first way Elisha engaged in spiritual warfare is he listened to the Lord. Now reading further in 2 Kings 6, 13 through 20, he said, uh, the king of Aram, go and see where he is so that I can send and bring him here. They told him he's in Doton. So he sent horses, chariots, and a large army there. They came by night and surrounded the city. The servant of the man of God got up early in the morning, and this is Elijah's servant. On going outside, he saw an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. His servant said to him, Oh, my master, this is terrible. What are we going to do? He answered, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Elisha prayed, Adonai, I ask you to open his eyes so that he can see. Then Adonai opened the young man's eyes, and he saw there before him, all around Elisha, the mountain was covered with horses and fiery chariots. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to Adonai, please strike these people blind. And he struck them blind as Elisha had asked. Next, Elisha told them, you've lost your way. And this isn't even the right city. Follow me. I'll take you to the man you're looking for. Then he led them to Shamron. On their arrival in Shamron, Elisha said, Adonai, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Adonai opened their eyes and they saw they were in the middle of Shamron. So Shamron is where uh, the king of Israel had his army set up. So they were in a trap. But the second lesson we learn is that our eyes must be open to the supernatural aspect of our physical challenges. The enemy tries to blind us to the great protection and strength that we have in the Lord, like he blinded Elisha's servant. To further em emphasize the supernatural protection that Adonai provides, we read in Psalms 121, 5 through 8, and again, this is from the complete Jewish Bible, Adonai is your guardian 
At your right hand, Adonai provides you with shade. The sun can't strike you during the day or even the moon at night. Adonai will guard you against all harm. He will guard your life. Adonai will guard your coming and going from now on and forever. Therefore, be confident, for we do not face our adversaries alone, but with the protection of the living God. So the second way Elisha engaged in spiritual warfare is that he saw the supernatural aspects of his physical challenge and he trusted in the Lord to provide supernatural protection and provision. And then reading further in 2 Kings, we see how the king and Elisha dealt with Aram's army once they were captured. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, My father, should I attack them? Should I attack them? He answered, Don't attack them. You wouldn't even attack prisoners you had captured with your own sword and bow, would you? So give them food to eat and water to drink and let them return to their master. So he provided well for them. And after they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they returned to their master. After that, no more raiding parties entered the land of Israel from Aram. So the third lesson we learn is that we are to be imitators of Yeshua. The blind army going, being led into the hand of the king is like how each person will face the judgment seat, the throne of God. Without Yeshua, we are without salvation and will face God's judgment and wrath and will pay the penalty for our own sins. But as Elisha showed Aram's army mercy and interceded on their behalf, Yeshua intercedes for each follower of him. Let us follow Elisha and Yeshua's example and show compassion and mercy to our enemies. Forgive others as he has forgiven us. No one knows the day or hour that they will face the judgment seat, but no one wants to face the judgment seat alone. We need to trust in Yeshua today. So the third lesson we learn from Elisha is that when, when we are given this, this physical victory over our enemies, we need to make sure that we're still paying attention to God's will in that circumstance. Because he could have done the human thing, right? And had uh, the Israel destroy Aram's army. But he didn't. He was listening to the Lord and he was engaged with the Lord's will. Which is why we see him intercede and imitate Yeshua's intercession for us. Although we don't find ourselves in the midst of physical wars, we are attacked on the spiritual battlegrounds. And with this in mind, I'm going to go over three steps to overcoming the enemy's schemes and walking in righteousness. So step one to walking in righteousness, for those note takers, is that we submit ourselves to God. So the first step is we submit ourselves to God. So I went and I looked at the dictionary because I was kind of curious to this idea of submission and what the dictionary says submission is. So the dictionary definition of to submit is to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another, and that's from the Oxford Language Dictionary. And we submit ourselves to God, uh, I think in four different ways. I was able to identify four ways. Uh, the first way is trusting him. And the, the two methods of trusting him that I thought of that came to mind was we trust in our salvation through Yeshua. 
We don't think that's going to go away. We don't enter into fear and doubt that the Lord loves us, but we trust in our salvation through Yeshua. And then the second way we trust him is we trust that God's will is for our ultimate good, that we serve a benevolent God, a God of love. We don't serve a God that wants us to go do evil for ourselves or others. So we trust that God's will is for our ultimate good. The second um, way that uh, we, we walk in righteousness and we submit ourselves to God is we obey him. So we obey him by keeping his commandments. And keeping his commandments uh, presupposes that we're studying the word, that we know what the, the Lord wants us to do. We know what it says in scripture. So the first step to obeying him is knowing his commandments. And then once we know his commandments, we have to keep his commandments. We have to have that hard intention of following the Lord in his ways over our ways. And related to that is that we need to listen to his voice and walk out his instruction for our lives. If we're engaged in the word and we know uh, the, the commandments and we're engaged in prayer, we should be hearing from the Lord. The Lord should have things that he wants you to do that he'll tell you about if you listen. So to obey him, we have to keep his commandments and we have to listen to his voice. The third way we submit to the Lord is by loving him. And we love him pretty much by doing the preceding, by keeping his commandments, knowing his will, his heart for us and our, his heart for other people. And we do that. We walk it out. And loving him is related to loving others, as we learned from Yeshua, and we talked about earlier during the liturgy. Loving others has an active component to it. To love others, we need to be looking out for other people's needs. We can't just say we're going to love other people and then have our ears shut when other people have needs. If we do that, we're not loving other people. We're trying to avoid inconveniencing ourselves <laughs> and not helping them. And that's not loving others. We might trick ourselves into thinking we're loving others, but when we fail to meet needs when we can, we're not loving others. We're kind of being lazy and apathetic. A good summary of how we submit ourselves to God can be found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I'm going to be reading from the message translation as I feel it does a really good job of emphasizing the contrast between cultural conformity and submission to God's will. So listen to this. So here's what I want you to do. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. So the first way that we walk in righteousness, the first step is we have to submit ourselves to the Lord.
The second step to walking in righteousness is we engage in good works. So we are each called to use our giftings and talents to produce good fruits. We are all called to share the good news of Messiah Yeshua and to serve in the community. Each believer is part of the body of Messiah, and when that body works in unity, we experience the fullness of the Lord. When we don't use our callings and gifts in service of the Lord, that's when the enemy gets a foothold in our lives. This apathy and laziness ultimately makes us ineffective for the kingdom and can lead to further sin. So if you aren't using your gifts for the Lord, I would encourage you to seek out ways to serve and fight the good fight for God's kingdom and break free from that complacency. Get that enemy's foothold out of your life. Yeshua tells us that we can produce good fruits, no fruits, or in, or in some cases, and this is the other extreme, thorns. Don't be producers of thorns. The enemy tries to deceive us, though, into believing that whatever bad things we do, whatever thorns that we're, we're producing are good, and he also tries to convince us that the good fruits or the good things that we do are bad. So what does that mean? It means we have to learn how to distinguish and discern the good from the bad. So below are a few descriptions of good fruits and how we distinguish them from thorns. So there's five characteristics or of good fruits, and if the action that your, uh, your good work that you're going to walk out fulfills these conditions, then it's good fruit. We know this from Scripture. So it's a good fruit if it gives glory to God and not to yourself. If it gives glory to God and not to yourself. It's a good fruit if it brings peace and not anxiety or fear. It's good fruit if it creates unity and not division. It's good fruit if it provides clarity, not confusion. And it's good fruit if the result is putting others before yourself. So if it meets those criteria as the good work, then you're walking out that work in righteousness. So that's the second step to walking in righteousness. We engage in good works. The third step to walking in righteousness is that, and this is kind of a long one, we recognize the enemy's lies and we combat those lies with God's truth as found in the Scripture. So we recognize the enemy's lies and that, and that means we have to be aware of what's going on around us. We, we can't just go on autopilot. And then we combat those lies with God's truth as found in the Scripture. So when we follow the Lord, Satan tries to ambush our forward movement, kind of like Aram's army was trying to ambush the Israelites. He tries to prevent us from living out the good works God has called us to. And he does this by trying to stir up doubts and fears that go against our calling. A few examples of these lies and, and this could really, in truth, be a, a whole message in and of itself. So I'll, I've identified two examples of uh, some of the lies that Satan tries to tell believers. And then the biblical responses that we can glean from the Word. And I'm going to be reading uh, the following passages from the, the New International Version. 
so the first lie that I, I've identified that Satan tries to tell us is that Scripture can't change my behavior. Or another way to think about that is Scripture doesn't apply to me. And when we believe this lie, we divert our focus away from God to the cares of the world. And we do that because we think having our focus on Scripture is pointless or meaningless. But in Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul warns Timothy regarding false teachers and how to recognize them. And Paul describes false teachers in Timothy 3, 1 through 8. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think that's a critical one. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's really hard to do both. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with these people. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. So we want to make sure that we, we, we don't just learn, but we also want to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that means not just hearing it, but believing it and living it out. In contrast to false teachers who divert their focus from the will of the Lord to the will of the flesh, and they do this because they deny the renewed heart and mind found in Scripture, Paul exhorts Timothy, and by extension believers today, to live by the word in 2 Timothy 3, 13-17. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those whom from you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus or Messiah Yeshua. And now hear this. This is how we combat this lie that Scripture doesn't apply to me or Scripture cannot influence my behavior. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when the Lord, when the Satan comes at you and he tries to tell you that Scripture can't change your behavior and Scripture doesn't apply to you, you can respond with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The second lie that I've identified that Satan tries to tell us is that I can't resist temptation or the influence of my sin is more powerful than God. 
When we believe this lie, we continue turning back to our old way of life. The church at Corinth struggled with turning back and trying to mix secular practices with holy practices. Paul speaks against these practices in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13. By explaining how temptation condemned the generation that left Egypt with Moses, and he encouraged them, uh, the church at Corinth, that unlike their ancestors, in Yeshua, they were able to resist all temptation. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel." These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And that us still applies to you and I today, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and don't we wish that it just had stopped and no temptation has overtaken you? Life don't work like that. <laughs> we will be tempted. And it even goes on further. And God is faithful. And he's faithful, but he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But I will tell you, you can get tempted up to what you can bear. And sometimes it feels like you can't bear it. But we got to turn our, our hearts and our minds to the Lord when we're in that situation. Because Satan tries to pull, pull at the, the string. We, we see what he did to Job. Personally, if I had to go through what Job went through, I think that would be, be currently beyond what I can bear. But he doesn't. He doesn't push you beyond what you can bear. And it says this, though. This is the encouragement. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So when the enemy comes at you and he, and he tries to convince you that you can't resist temptation and that your sin is more powerful, has a stronger influence on your life than God, we can remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and, and we can uh, proclaim that against the enemy. So a common thread found in these two lies is that we turn our hearts, that is our desires, away from the things of God towards the thing of the flesh when we let Satan get that foothold. So if you find yourself or a close friend or family member in that position today, be courageous. Call out that rebellious spirit. If it's you, repent. If it's them, challenge them to repent. Pray with them. Don't see your, your friend or your family member in need and leave them just lost in their sin. And lead them to turning back. And if it's, you're in that position, turn back towards the truth found in a committed life in Messiah Yeshua. So in conclusion, as believers, the Lord has given us all the tools we need to overcome the schemes of the enemy. 
The weapons to combat these lies are scripture and prayer. And our defenses against lies are resisting temptation, faith and trusting, and having a delivered mindset. We've looked at three steps to walking in righteousness. One, we submit ourselves to God. Two, we engage in good works. And three, we recognize the enemy's lies and combat those lies with God's truth. But then this question comes up. Why does walking in righteousness matter? In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Yeshua gives us the answer. So listen to the words of Yeshua. When the Son of Man comes in, in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? We're thirsty and give you drink. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Yeshua's message is clear. How we choose to live impacts both our physical community and our spiritual relationship with him. Living a life for self will separate us from God and lead to destruction. But living a self-sacrificing life where we sacrifice, we crucify our flesh daily will draw us near to God and renewed life in Him. Eternal punishment or eternal life. The choice is yours. Believe in the victory that God has given you. Choose life in Yeshua today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.